Next Chapter Podcasts. Hey guys, we had already recorded the intro when I got the news that Eddie Van Halen has passed away from his 20-year battle uh, with cancer. And I just wanted to say to everybody, go and listen to Van Halen. You know, listen to the episode we did with Patrick Wilson from Weezer because you can feel the love that he has for Eddie, for the entire band, and for the music that they created because they changed music. Eddie Van Halen's guitar playing changed the way people played guitar, the way Tom Morello played guitar, the way Joe Satriani played guitar. It is a horrible loss to music. And I know a lot of you Felice Army out there are feeling it today. So just listen to their music, man. After the podcast, just put on the albums. Put on the first record. Put on 1984. Put on the stuff they did with Sammy Hagar. Put on the stuff they did with Gary Sharon. And and just enjoy it. Because that's why this podcast and the fans of the podcast are so great. Because we have an appreciation for music and for the guitar gods that have uh, graced our ears and uh, made us a better person and joined us on our journey throughout life. So... Listen to Van Halen, listen to the Patrick Wilson episode, episode 415, and uh, just take care of yourselves, guys. Fuck 2020. Can I just say that? Fuck 2020. Mama, I'm depending on you. Tell me the truth. Mama just hung her head and said, son. Lacko was a lack of dog. She is definitely not a frog. On a lacko. Oh, she is just a liquor dog. This is probably my favorite song by The Temptations. Even though the rest of this record, every song on it, I 100% played at a wedding when I used to DJ them back in the two zero zero zeros. The song is Papa Was a Rolling Stone by The Temptations from their 1995 Greatest Hits album anthology. And guess what, guys? It is our last album of the 400s. It's number 400 out of five on the 500 with Josh Adam Myers, guys. What is up? Who's excited, man? Because next week is 399. Thank you guys for everybody that's been reaching out telling me to continue doing the 2012 list. Uh, There's a few of you that say do the 2020, but for right now, man, I'm going to tell you, I want to finish where we started. We can get to the 2020 list because guess what? They're probably going to change it eventually. Also, do we really want to memorialize anything about the year 2020? Everything in the year 2020 has sucked balls. Ball zookies. So I don't want to remember this year. I can't wait for 2021. Hopefully, uh, we're all still here. And if we are, then I've got a way for us all to celebrate life and existence. I am doing the goddamn Comedy Jam on October 15th at 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, in conjunction with my buddy Bubba over at In Crowd. Guys, it is a new technology. It's a television studio with all these cameras, like we're doing the TV show, and you can be on screen singing along. We could be making fun of you, doing crowd work, It is the goddamn Comedy Jam television show that I always wanted to do with Jeremiah Watkins, Johnny Scordis as my roadies. I got the full band, except for Avery, because he's on full coronavirus lockdown, hasn't left his house in fucking months. But this lineup is fucking fire. Jim Jeffries, Steve Byrne, 
Jamie Kennedy, Sklar Brothers, Tony Baker, Adam Ray, almost every single person on this lineup has been on the 500. And I'm telling you guys right now, this is the jam I've always wanted to do. And being that it's quarantine and it's COVID still, even though the president doesn't give a fuck, I do. I want to make sure you guys are safe. You're the audience. You can watch from your home. I need you guys there. Celebrate with us. Celebrate life. Celebrate music. Celebrate the love of jokes. October 15th, 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. I promise you it'll be worth every cent. You can get tickets on our website. Follow the link at the500podcast.com. October 15th. Also, guys, me, Evan, and JT, Crazy Evan, the guy that runs our Facebook page, who talks like a mile a minute. I love him to death. The Canadian gangster. Actually, we call him the Canadian Speed Racer. Maybe, I don't know, come here, meet Evan. We got to figure out a way for everybody to get to see Evan talk and, and realize how intense this guy is. He came up with this great idea. Being that I am the leader of the Fleece Army, I'm the commander in Fleece, the King Kadoogle, I am so excited to talk to you guys about the new 500 Challenge. As we are going through this journey, I want my listeners out there to set up their instruments and their voices to the ultimate task. I am announcing today the first ever 500 podcast theme song contest, y'all. 500 theme song contest. Wang Zuki. That's right, everybody. I want my listeners to send in your submissions for music. We can play on the show intro and outro to button up each week's episodes. I want your band to rock out with your out. Even if you have a vajugal, I want to hear your music on the show if it's good. Only if it's good. If it's crappy, you're out. The grand prize for the winner is a one-year subscription to the 500 Club with all free merch and content you get on the Patreon for a full year. I also will make a video for you. You'll get a direct link to me. We can have a full-on Patreon conversation podcast that we will put up there and I will talk you up and I'll help your career as best as I can because I'm trying to help mine and you know it's, it's going okay but guys go to the website read the details and submit your music by emailing 500 podcast at gmail.com we will be playing your submissions on the show and members of the 500 club on patreon are all like the electoral college with the final votes to decide who's gonna make the cut so if your music sucks meh sorry that's on you bud Go to our website for rules and check all the details to get your submissions into the show. And if you want to be a judge, join the 500 Club on Patreon, where we'll get merch from Young and Sick and extra content we're producing just for our club members. That was a mouthful. Two big things going on in my life. Oh, also, guys, last weekend of October, I will be with Big J Okerson in motherfucking Denver at Comedy Works. And November 27th through the 29th, I will be at the DC Comedy Loft full headlining I'm taping those to cut it up make and do like a little mini special so yeah man come out to those shows I got a new website coming you can find all of that at joshadammyers.com hopefully uh, when this drops the website will be active again either way man dude join the fleece army join the 500 club dude it's dope patreon 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 alright this is uh, this is an album this is one of those albums that is a greatest hits, and uh, a lot of you guys get mad when it's greatest hits, but when you're going through a career like the career the Temptations have had, 
I don't think there's one album that really fully encapsulates how great they are. You have to do an anthology. And I'm glad that this one came up right at this time because sometimes, you know, you need to hear this music. It, it settles the soul, makes you fall in love with the world again. And uh, yeah, let's find out a little bit about it. Released on May 23rd, 1995 on Motown Records. This is the third version of the comprehensive compilation collection by the American R&B, soul, pop, funk, psychedelic, disco, vocal group, The Temptations. Like many groups of their era, there were a lot of name and personnel changes, so we're going to keep it as simple as possible to catch you up. Paul Williams and Eddie Kendrick sang together in church in Birmingham, Alabama, and by the mid-50s started a doo-wop vocal group with a couple friends called The Cavaliers. By 1957, they were a trio and moved to Detroit, Michigan to pursue a professional music career. They then changed their name to The Primes. Texan Otis Williams moved to Detroit as a teenager and in 1958 started local vocal group Otis Williams and the Siberians, which became the El Domingos and then The Distance. Also in the group were Alabama native Melvin Franklin, his cousin Richard Street, and Georgian Elbridge Al Bryant. After a couple of record deals, a few regional hits, and some member changes, they were renamed Otis Williams and The Distance and were offered a deal by Barry Gordy to his Motown Records label. But then the group lost Richard Street and another member, leaving Otis, Al, and Melvin in limbo. Now the Primes and the Distance were friendly rivals on the Detroit scene. The Primes considered the more polished group. They even had a sister group called the Primettes, who, if you listen to this goddamn podcast, became the Supremes. However, in 1960, the Primes broke up and Eddie and Paul moved back to Alabama. But when Eddie came back to Detroit to visit his family, he called Otis, who told him the distance needed two more members for their Motown audition. Eddie and Paul joined Otis, Melvin, and Al to become the Elgins and were signed first to Motown subsidiary Miracle Records for a couple singles and then to the Gordy Records label. Paul and Eddie split most vocal leads on their singles with all members getting a chance. By 1963, the band started working with singer, songwriter, and producer Smokey Robinson, whose group The Miracles were also on Motown, but they still couldn't get a hit. And now Mississippi native David Ruffin had moved to Detroit as a teen and put out a few singles in the late 50s. He became friends with Barry Gordy's family and even helped build their studio, Hitsville, USA. David followed the Temptations around to gigs, hoping to become a member, and even jumped on stage with them at a show, impressing them with his singing and dancing. By the end of 63, Al Bryant was fed up with their lack of success and after several fights with the band was fired, leaving a space open for Mr. David Ruffin. And in 1964, it began the classic five era of The Temptations. They already had a cool, sophisticated style and memorably athletic choreography. And by April, they had their first hit record with the way you do the things you do. Eddie, with his brilliant falsetto, sang most leads, but Smokey Robinson knew David's rough and powerful voice just needed the perfect song for them to have a huge hit. That's how we got My Girl. Smokey was right, and the group finally broke through and followed it with a bunch of romantic hits. Just so you know who sang what in their complex harmonies, Melvin Franklin was the low bass, Otis Williams was the baritone. Paul Williams sang occasional leads and David Ruffin with his growling baritone and Eddie Kendrick's 
with his soaring tenor split most leads. A couple years later, Motown producer and songwriter Norman Whitfield lobbied Barry Gordy to work with The Temptations. And with frequent songwriting partner Barrett Strong, they brought the group through the 60s and into the 70s with songs that reflected the funk, psychedelia, and social consciousness of their contemporaries. However, after David Ruffin became unreliable and difficult to work with in large part due to his drug use, he was successfully replaced by Dennis Edwards. Guys, I can't recommend to you enough, not to get too off topic, if you haven't seen the Temptations miniseries, watch that shit. Because Leon plays David Ruffin and he's just, he just kills it. I'm David Ruffin. You can't fire David Ruffin. A few years later, Eddie Kendricks left to pursue a solo career and Paul Williams left due to poor health. They were replaced by Damon Harris and former member Richard Street and at their final number one, Papa was a Rolling Stone. They followed with more minor hits for a few years until Dennis Edwards left and the popularity waned. With continuing membership changes, they left Motown for Atlantic Records and then back to Motown without much success until 1982 when they had a comeback hit, an album, and tour when David, Eddie, and Dennis all returned for a seven-member reunion version of the group. But after more of the same old shit, Ruffin and Kendricks were out and the Temptations continued recording and touring with some decent chart successes to this day. This is what's dope, guys. In the nearly 60-year career, think about that, 60 years, they have 15 number one singles, three Grammy Awards, two American Music Awards, and a Soul Train Music Award. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1989, into the NAACP Hall of Fame in 92, and into the R&B Hall of Fame in 2013. And that same year, they received the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. They are the most successful R&B act of all time. And our guest today is the founding member of The Temptations, the one and only Otis Williams. Big Daddy, the baritone, songwriter, and record producer. Otis is the only surviving founding member, and dude, I mean, I can't tell you guys how much fun it is to talk to him. Like, he's going to say some things in here that's going to cling with you, and you're going to be like, holy shit, I'm saying that for the rest of my life. That's as funky as an unwashed armpit. Also, joining Otis is special guest and Motown and Temptations historian Harry Weinger. A veteran of the entertainment industry, Harry is currently vice president of A&R for Universal Music Enterprises, the catalog reissue arm of UMG. He has produced, mixed, written, and edited liner notes for hundreds of releases, winning two Grammy Awards and other honors. His definitive overview of the music of James Brown was not only a Grammy Award winner, it's coming up on the list at number 75. He also co-executive produced the original cast recording for the Tony Award-winning Temptations musical, Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations. Guys, you are getting a definitive history about this amazing album from the people who know it best. Obviously, Otis was there for all of it, and this collection is incredible. And we tried our best to pick the best of the best. We can't do every song. I think it's like 40 songs. But I feel like we got we got a really great episode for you guys. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to The 500 on all platforms. It's free. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, 
do us a favor, leave a five-star rating and leave a review. Get rid of the negativity and talk about the love, people. Give the love for the 500. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. Follow the Facebook group run by Crazy Meth Head Evan at 500 Podcast with Jam. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Well, guys, nothing left to say, but here we go with number four, a hundred. With anthology by the temptations, you're all gone to enjoy this episode. Here comes that episode. This is like, it's still one of those things that I'm like pinching myself right now that I'm talking to a legend of of music, of life, of culture, of of everything. And, you know, I've grown up with your music. Uh, it's, it's, I was saying off air and I wanted to say it again to the Fleece Army uh, is that you, the Temptations to me are Thanksgiving dinner. They are comfort food. It's matzo ball soup. And, and I don't think this record could have come up at a more perfect time with the state of the world that we are in right now with with the election and the virus and all of this to have this record like to come on the list it's almost like the universe is like all right everybody we're going to be okay just just know that that we've got this beautiful music to listen to for the next week and you're going to be fine and then next week when we do tom waits it all goes back to shit but <laughs> until then it's the temptation so being that you were there, man, and you are you. I want to know, what was your first remembrance of seeing the guys that would eventually make up the Temptations in the Primes? Well, I'll start with the first night that I knew I had the right nucleus was uh, January 1963. Smokey Robinson had called for the Tips to come to Motown to record. Now, at the time... From the transitional period of Al Bryant, Richard Street, uh, James Crawford, and Melvin was still with me. So that night it was Eddie Kendricks, Paul Williams, David Ruffin, Melvin Franklin, and myself. And as we were walking to the studio, uh, it was a cold, chilly night, and something hit me. It's almost like, Otis, this is the five, these are the five guys that's going to make history. So when we went to Motown and we met up with Smokey and we went upstairs and he passed out the lyrics to the way you do the things you do. Now, Smokey, uh, he wrote, I want to love, I can see, and a few others before we did the way you do the things you do. So as Smokey passing out the lyrics and he sat down at the piano and he passed out the lyrics. So I'm reading the lyrics and I'm saying, you got a smile so bright. Should have been a candle. I said, man, there's some hokey lyrics here. I said, okay. <laughs> okay anyway. Yeah, so we went downstairs and we recorded it and it turned out great. And I came back and I looked at Smoke and I said to myself, Smoke is a bad man. I mean, to take something nonsensical and make it sense, you know, make some sense of it. And so I never will forget uh, that time, you know, when we went in there for the first time to really get our first big hit record. And we were a working group even then because uh, we would always work, find places to work inside of, uh, you know, Michigan. And we were up in uh, Muskegon, Michigan, uh, for about three weeks. And when we came back from Muskegon, David and myself, we came to Motown just to see what was happening. 
And one of the executives said, man, where you guys been? We've been trying to find y'all. I said, well, we, you know, we working. We was up in Muskegon. He said, well, you got to hit. So he went and got the billboard and the cash box magazine because that's what was happening at the time. And David and I, we saw it. We had jumped in at, I think, like, like number 76 or 78 with a bullet. Motown at the time had a long chase lounge in the lounge. And him and I, David and I, Love a good chase lounge. Well, we sat on that chase lounge and David took off his glasses and him and I cried because that was the first hit that got the temptation. The classic five, as the world has come to know, yeah. uh, started. I mean, that is incredible. So, I mean, we're going to dive into the way you do the thing to do uh, in, in just a second. But that moment that you find out that you have that first hit, did you have any idea that it would become the, not just the song, but the temptations would be rock and roll hall of fame, NAACP hall of fame, just uh, um, the, one of the most iconic, if not the most iconic, uh, I mean, vocal group, uh, R and B group in, in what I would call the history of mankind. Did you have any inclination? No, no, I could <laughs> not even take on all that. Uh, uh-uh, no, I mean, cause all we wanted to do was just saying, I have hit records, make money, and sing to the girls and get the girls. Yeah, dude. You know, so for it to grow from that to all the way where it is grown to now, no, man, I'm not going to even say anything about, oh, I knew we were going to be, uh, you know, in ACP, this and that, and singing with President Obama in the Oval Office a silent night with uh, one of our great presidents and all the many wonderful things that we've accomplished. Oh, I could not even imagine that back in 1964, 65. Oh, no, not even. Okay, well, then I got to ask you this. What was the first thing you bought, you know, when you were like, all right, I feel like I got a little bit of extra money right now. Like, what was the what was the first little doodle dang you spent some money on? Well, I've always been known as a clothes horse, oh. you know, so I would always buy, you know, clothes because uh, uh, that's been my thing for the longest. And uh, thereafter, I started, I uh, got, we were working enough for me to get my own, uh, my own apartment. So I started buying furniture for my own uh, place uh, in Detroit. So, but clothes and then, uh, like I said, my apartment. And, uh, you know, so when you have the ladies come over, they were stepping in and said, wow, this looks real nice. So I was, yeah, dude. <laughs> one, you know, I was like 22 years old at the time. You know, so it was that kind of fun. Dude, so this is why I feel like you and I, as I'm talking to you, are kindred spirits. Right? Uh, so I never had money my whole life either. And then I inherited 40 grand when I was 18. I gave half to my parents so they could buy their house back. And then I went so crazy on buying clothes. One day I went to the mall and I spent $2,000 on random fleeces. Yeah. Fleece. Yeah. Not not Versace. (laughs) Fleeces. Yeah, right. And that is why... On the podcast, they call me the King of Fleece. Uh, uh, so I, I knew it. I knew there was there was a connection between you and I. So so let's let's dive into this record. So it's ranked four hundred on the two thousand and twelve list. Well, so we have we have we have Harry. Harry, do you want to explain uh, to everybody who you are? Because you'll be chiming in well, as well. Why right? Why am I on the microphone? Is that what you're? Why at? are you on the microphone while we're <laughs> talking to one of the the greatest R and B singers of all time? Yeah, no, who always wanted me here? I'm Harry Weinger. I work for Universal Music for many years. And I've been involved with the Temptations catalog for more than 25 years. Uh, I had produced their box set, got friendly with Otis and with Melvin at the time. Otis and I have remained close all these years, the big O. That's right. I appreciate him asking me on uh, because what it, uh, although this anthology's title has been in a couple of different versions, this CD version is what's on the list. And the CD was essentially 
kind of a cut down of the Emperors of Soul box set. But we put our own kind of heart and soul into making the anthology in, in concert with Otis and Melvin and making it sort of um, similar to the original LP version, but adding the many hits that they had afterwards. Because by the time the CD era came, the group had many more hits. And we also were able to include some album cuts and things like that that illuminated the story. So I'm really happy to be on and I can add whatever info you need. And Otis, by the way, it was January 64, not 63, just saying. When the way you oh. do, the way you do the things <laughs> you do was recorded. Up, come and try to correct Big O. What's that uh, when we went in the studio? 64, yeah. 64. Yeah, that's what I meant to say, 64. In fact, I, in fact, I said that opening line on uh, one of our albums, I used that as a backdrop. It was the year 1964. Yeah, so you're right. I mean, this group has really kind of just sustained tremendously, and so that's really why we're here. You know, you know why uh, I mentioned 63? That was when David Ruffin joined the group, you know, uh, at the time when we had to let uh, Al Bryant go. So when 64 rolled around, yeah, David was in the group, but it was 63. But go ahead on, Harris. That's no, all right. Josh's turn now. No, no, no. I, we were talking right before we get started about you know having the first somebody the original member on the group. This is also the first time we've had two people on the podcast if it wasn't live at like a comedy festival. So, dude, Otis, you you're, you're breaking barriers on so many levels today in music, podcasting. It's great, and we we have to say this to the audience. There are uh, there's a lot of tracks on this anthology. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. So we picked out... Uh, the hits, some interesting ones to show the direction of, of of the power of the band and their music, and and then also the evolution of the music as it goes further and further in through the anthology. So, the one I want to open up with is the way you do the things you do. So, this is written by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles bandmate Bobby Rogers, and uh, lead by Annie Kendrick's stunning falsetto. Peter, uh, play one fifty. All right, so this was your first big hit, and and I just got to say this this is perfect. This is a perfect song. Uh, tell me your tell me about your thoughts recording this, going through the process of of getting this onto the record. Well, the process, like I said earlier, was uh, 
We sat down with smoking, and he passed out the lyrics. We went downstairs and recorded it. And uh, like I said, I thought it was some hokey lyrics, but that shows the greatness of Smokey Robinson because he could turn something like sound so silly into really being uh, fantastic. And uh, so when the record was released, you know, Motown was the kind of place that we would hang out uh, at, even if we didn't have a hit or uh, if we weren't recording because it was just a fun place to be. So when we came up to Motown thereafter, when uh, they released The Way You Do The Things You Do, the different promotion men and the executives said, well, you guys got one. You're jumping off in Chicago. I said, okay, great. But the one I really was waiting to hear was that, see, once you captured New York City, then you was over like a big dog. So when they said, Gotta oh, all the heavy, yeah, you got, once you get New York City, you, you are flowing. So deep, uh, New York. Chicago, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington. When they said New York, and next thing you know, uh, the way you do the things you do uh, took off. And we did tour after tour after tour after tour. I mean, we were busier than a blind dog in a meat market. So oh. it was a great ride. <laughs> Can I use that? Because I'm, I'm, I love that. That's like my new favorite like little throwaway. Yeah, busier than a blind dog in a meat market. Yes, sir. What I want to ask, Otis, is is didn't like how does Smokey give you this song like doesn't Smokey know how big of a hit this song was going to be well you know that that shows you the greatness of Smokey Smokey has not always just been about just smoking the miracles you know and that's what made him such a wonderful friend and a great writer because if he had a great song he would pass it around to not only the temps he did some songs on the Marvelettes or he did songs on uh, Marvin Gaye Aside from the miracles, that shows you the greatness and the heart beat of Smokey Robinson. He was not a selfish uh, person, and he still isn't a, a selfish person because I just had the great pleasure of seeing my friend uh, about three nights ago. In fact, he's going to be on the Temptation's 60th anniversary. I asked him, I said, Smokey, we're getting ready to do our uh, 60th anniversary. And uh, Derek, my uh, wonderful road manager, him and I were riding, and when he mentioned Smokey's name, I said, you know what? I'm going to call Smokey because I would love for Smokey to be on this new album that we're getting ready to work on. So when I got in touch with Smokey, uh, he said he calls me Oak, uh, you know, <laughs> O-A-K. I said, Oak. He said, man, you're the strongest brother I know. You Look what you did, all the great singers you had, you're still standing. I said, well, thank you, Sam, uh, Smokey. But I would love for you to be on this next album because you got us started rolling with the way you do the things you do. My Girl, Since I Lost My Baby, and all those great hits. It's only right that you should be on this year uh great uh, anniversary he said oak you just tell me when and where and i'll be there i love that have you bought him anything as like a gift have you been like dude i got a here's a trip to bahamas or something i mean that dude has hooked y'all up man let me tell you about smoking smoking is smoking so rich he don't need he don't even need a new pair of shoe strings to tie another pair of shoes you know uh aside from the richness you know that he is we gave him a picture of the original temps uh 1964 at the Greystone Ballroom, and I saw it on Facebook. I said, wow, Smokey still have that picture. You know, I mean, what can you do for a guy uh, that's wonderfully spiritually, uh, spiritually like uh, Smokey? I mean, sure. just his friendship sure. is, uh, is all I can ask for. You didn't take him out for dinner? Take him to Benny Hanna's or something? Just come on. My, you, you, you know what? <laughs> We'd love to do that, but Smokey... Smokey stays busy just as much as the Temptations. It was so ironic. Sure. Uh, a few months ago, uh, we ran into him uh, at the uh, Bentley dealers. 
Hushup, and I hadn't seen Smokin quite some time since then. But every now and then we run into each other. And just uh, like a few nights ago when we did a, a KTLA uh, um, speech for the station, you know, Smokey was there and uh, some of the uh, uh, Motown uh, people that was, you know, from Detroit but lived in L.A. So I saw Smokey about three nights ago. Nice. I just love that you said you ran into him at the Bentley dealership. Uh, that is where <laughs> I only can imagine icons hang out you know that's not where i'm running i don't you know at the the toyota prius dealership i'm not really running into many people maybe a few but not legends so yeah you mentioned you you mentioned my girl right and i just want to play the opening real quick peter play my girl's opening This has to be the most iconic bass intro in the history of pop music. And it takes me, I mean, just it just the memories that this song brings back. I, I One of my earliest memories of, of dating, I guess, was I was at summer camp one year. And I don't know if you remember that movie, My Girl with Macaulay Culkin. Do you remember yes, that? Yeah, you probably got paid for that. So, yeah. So, yeah, I really know. Yeah, there you go. So um, I remember we're watching that movie. This girl, Jen, she was dating somebody else, but she had just broken up with him earlier in the day, and she told me that she liked me. And as that song's on, I like stood up on my chair like, she likes me. It's just such a beautiful song. And, yes. I mean, it's it's also the, the, the one that kind of made David Ruffin, who uh, was an ensemble singer up until this one. Um, so it's written by Smokey Robinson and another Miracles bandmate, Ronnie White. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, this is the first lead with David Ruffin. And I know Paul was considered the lead singer before Eddie took over, but with David on this one, was there any issues with the new guy taking the lead? No, no, it really wasn't because see. Uh, being in Detroit, and we used to do a lot of record hops, and David was a, a solo uh, singer before it became a, a temptation, you know. So he had that repertoire, uh, that repertoire as being a noted uh, singer to begin with. So it, let me tell you, uh, when uh, David asked to be in my group, I was I was astounded because I said, well, you want to be in the temps? I said, because David would throw the microphone up, drop down to his knees, and he was very showman-like, you know. So uh, he said, yeah, man, Otis, I love it. something about you guys. Uh, that I like, and I want to be a part of the Temps. Now, at the time, uh, the Temptations consisted of uh, Melvin Franklin, Eddie Kendrick, Paul Williams, and myself. Hell, we had to let go. So David uh, joined the group, and we started working out and uh, developing a show. So one night, uh, after the way you do the things you do became such a huge hit, we were appearing at a club called the 20 Grand. Now, Smokey came, and so it's because the place was packed. And so we did our show, and uh, came off and Smokey came backstage. He said, man, you guys are fantastic. I love you, brothers. Y'all know something else. Then he stopped and he looked at David Ruffin and he said, I got a song for you. So us being young, we said, man, bring it on. We can sing anything. We had to leave the next day or so to fly into New York 
to work the Apollo, the miracles and the temptations. And I forgot who else was on the show, but it was the temptations and uh, the miracles. And in between the show, uh, Smokey would have us to come to his dressing room and we would rehearse uh, My Girl. So after we did the Apollo, we flew back to Detroit, went into the studio, recorded My Girl. So we put the you know the background on and uh, the track was there. So thereafter we put the background on, here come Paul Reiser. Paul Reiser came in there and when he laid the strings and the horns to uh, top it off of My Girl, I walked in the studio and uh, Smokey was sitting at the console. I said, Smokey, I don't know how big a record this is going to become, but this is going to be a big record. My Girl was released December, about near the end of uh, December of 1964. Yeah, who releases February. records around Christmas time? Who, who releases yeah. a pop song around Christmas time anymore? You know, nobody does that. that was, so that was, that was, that was like totally uh, irregular? That, they I did it. Yeah, you just don't do it. But he did, they did it. So go ahead. Sure, sure did. And that February of 1965, we were at the Apollo, and Barry sent us a, a congratulations of we sold over a million records and we were number one. The Supremes uh, sent us a congratulations uh, telegram, and the Beatles sent us a telegram congratulating us. And I still have it in my home today, you know. So uh, from that day on, boy, the temptations have been rolling. Which I love. Uh... To, to know that it's like you you would think that releasing it around Christmas is when everybody's buying gifts. So you'd be like, hey, we'll get them the My Girl single. Um, next question I want to ask, kind of a follow-up to that, is were you guys ready and prepared for what that fame was going to be like? You know, only thing you can do is be dedicated and loyal and practice because we were very prideful guys of what we do. You know, so we were always rehearsing to stay, uh, especially when we had hits, you know, we really wanted to be, uh, you know, in conjunction with any of the other acts that was on the stage, you know, that were good, you know, and then we had the late, great Paul Williams that initially said, well, now we're not going to be an act that just would come out and stand the same. We have to become very showy. We have to uh, sell sex. We got to have become exciting. That's how the, uh, the choreography uh, came about. And uh, so um, we constantly rehearsed. But when Motown uh, had a department called Artist Development, and I had already heard of Charlie Atkins before I even met him. And when they said uh, Charlie was going to be our choreographer, man, he spit shining us so good. I mean, because they were grooming us for the Copa. You know, so we were always, as we are today, if we wasn't on this here uh, pandemic, uh, you know, situation that we're in, we are always trying to rehearse to stay, uh, you know, really the way people have come to know and love us. I was being interviewed not too long ago, and the guy was saying all the accolades about the tips and this and that. I said, well, let me ask you something. If I'm 80 years old or we're 80 years old, you know, you don't want us to come out and know Mr. Williams. We want to come out and see the temptation, still do all that choreography. I said, boy, we have been stigmatized with all that choreography that we cannot <laughs> get around of it. All right. Uh, ain't too proud to beg once yes. again. Another iconic opening. Yeah. Peter, play the intro. I know you want to leave me, but I refuse to let you go. If I have to beg, plead for your sympathy, I don't mind, cause you mean that much to me. All right, so a little background on me. Uh, When I still lived in the Washington, D.C. area, I used to be a wedding DJ, a 
okay? And I was like the most requested wedding DJ from 2000 to 2006 in the Washington, Baltimore, Virginia area. And there was a whole thing. You do the you do the the first dance with the bride and groom. Of course, it's something slow. Then you in, and then in the middle of that song, you invite everybody up to the dance floor with the in couples so they could dance with their partner. And then right when that ended, I had two choices of songs to get the audience going, get them dancing. One was September by Earth, Wind, and Fire. The other song was this song right here, and it was a guaranteed. Everybody would stay on the dance floor and cut a rug. So I can't thank you enough, Otis, for making uh, my job easy during Glad that I could time. help out. Glad Such I a great song, out. man. Uh, I, I mean, what is it like hearing this right now, just, just knowing that this song is, has transcended just music? Like, give me your thoughts and feelings of just hearing that little clip of it. Oh, I'll tell you what. Norman Whitfield, him and I grew up together. You know, he used to be pop, uh, the tambourine player for pop, uh, Popcorn Wilder and the Mohawks. So Norman would come by my house and he would bring a track by. He said, man, tell me what you think of this. So when I heard the drum roll and it went right in, I said, man, that track is smoking. He says, uh, I thought so. So anyway, make a long story short, we went in the studio and we did the background. But the funny part of doing it too proud to beg every time I think about it, I would sit up and laugh, and people that's around me, they would say, oh, this is what you laughing about. When David Ruffin went in, see, Norman would record the track a little bit higher, higher key. And the reason being, he said, oh, this, I don't want it to be too relaxed. Well, you know, if you're trying to sing a serious song, or a song that's got emotion and flow, it becomes too relaxed. So he, he bounced the key up a little bit. So when David went down there to put the lead on, they were just thinking, he said, I know. And he was growling, he was screaming, he was growling, he was doing all that. And we up in the country, come on, David, baby. Come on, boy, you can pull it off. Come on, David. Boy, this is a bad mofo. Come on, David. You know, he's singing and, and he's sweating and what have you. And so when he finally did the, uh, the song and he came out, his glasses were sideways, a pound of sweat was rolling off his face. You know, so we all busted out laughing. But man, when they released that song, Ain't You Proud to Beg? Uh, my God, it was almost a... a same kind of popularity as my girl, you know. So I always think about uh, when that happened and how uh, Ain't You Proud to Be uh, came about. And I must say, Eddie Holland wrote the hell out of those lyrics. Yeah. Uh, so it's written by Norman and Eddie Holland. Uh, incredible song. Um, but I also read that you guys were on the road and didn't know this was a hit until an hour before you were about to tape an episode of Dick Clark's American Bandstand. What's it? What's it like finding out? You know, this song's a hit. You're about to go up, do Dick Clark's. I heard at the last minute, uh, Motown ordered you guys to perform it, so Paul had to throw away some throw some choreography together. Is that? Oh, I, I don't remember that uh, more so than that came about with Get Ready. Uh, we were prepared to do uh, Ain't Too Proud to Big, you know, when uh, we found out that it was going to be released because. Uh, Paul, we went in and rehearsed and we did the moves and whatever. So we were ready to do it. Uh, but what we had to do on a quick notice was get ready because uh, Norman Whitfield caught Mr. Gordy coming into the office one day. And Norman was very pushy. You know, I love him, but he was, you know, he didn't take no finances. So I had the pleasure of seeing this happen. Mr. Gordy got out of his limo, going into his office, and Norman ran, Barry, 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 I got a hit on the tips. I, I got a hit on them. And uh, so Barry and them, they talked about it. 
So Barry said, I'll tell you what we'll do, Norma. I'm going to stick with Smokey Get Ready because he's had the hits on the smoke on the temps. He said, but I'm going to release Get Ready. And if Get Ready do not crack the top 10, you got the next release. So Get Ready did what it did, but it didn't go into the top 10. And uh, Norman got uh, the release to Ain't Too Proud to Beg. So once we knew that, we started rehearsing uh, for Ain't Too Proud to Beg. So uh, when we did it on Dick Clark, oh, we were ready. We were showing because there's no way are we going to go on Dick Clark half ass, you know. So we were ready to do it. <laughs> yeah, you can't half ass. You can't half ass Dick Clark, dude. Come on. This is uh, this is actually a, a, a kind of a de- demarcation point for the group because from the way you do the things you do through Get Ready, it's all smoky all the time. Yeah. So then there's this challenge by Whitfield, who's been in the wings waiting to get his moment. And he wants his moment with the temps because he sees them as a vehicle for the kind of sound he has, which, as Otis says, he's pushy and the productions are aggressive, right? I mean, ain't too proud. The vocal comes in right away. Boom. Yeah. There's no horns or strings. He don't need horns or strings. Right. So, um, you know, this is the point where once Whitfield got in that chair and had the Temptations as his group, he didn't let that up except for a couple of songs, which maybe we'll talk about, for eight years yeah that's right i mean that's right and so this is the moment and in fact you know the the song was a mess and barry gordy probably didn't believe in it because it started out as please don't leave me girl they tried it in different ways um they tried different titles and you know what otis is leaving out is that which we can talk about is motown had quality control meetings you had to pass right. the quality control meetings. So Ain't Too Proud that, didn't, I... didn't pass these meetings. Get Ready was the track. So he had to yeah. go in and fix that up. He had to fix it. He got Eddie Holland to, to make it Ain't Too Proud. So is it true that, that Barry would get the whole staff together and they'd play the record and be like, all right, is this a hit? Like, yeah, is it, yes, and it's, it's literally like the Coliseum, like, you know, up, down, I know yeah. I saw it in the yeah. I saw because I just rewatched uh, the uh, the the uh, biography movie that came on I think in like 1998 and it's where he says would you if you had five dollars to your name would you spend it on <laughs> a sandwich or on this record he really did that shit yeah they would have I believe every Friday they would have a, a quality control meeting up in Mr Gordon's office and he would call you know. Uh, various people of the staff and, and his personnel. Um, and he would ask them. He, they would hold, I mean, one day I walked by and boy, they were going at it. No, I don't believe that. Damn, man, what about this one? You know, there was a lot of fervor going on in there. And uh, I never will forget one day, see, if you want to make Mr. Gordon mad, be late. And one day, <laughs> one day I came by uh, the, walking uh, to the other end of the quality control and Smokey was a little late and Smokey was knocking on the door. Bear, it's your boy, Smoke. Open the door, man. Open the door. It's Smoke. Uh, yeah, I guess he got in because I kept on walking. But, boy, you don't want to make Mr. Gordon mad by being late. But they did have uh, those quality control meetings, and they would be fierce. You know, they would be fierce. And uh, so whatever came out of there, please believe it was scrutinized to the max. But that's how you get hits. That's why Motown is one of the most respected record labels in the history of music. I mean, you don't you. get greatness unless you, that's right. you got to be hard. You got to be tough. You got to be real. A hundred percent. All right. I want to change the mood a little bit because uh, the next song I want to talk about is I Wish It Would Rain. Uh, Motown staff writer, 
Roger uh, Pezzabine. Thank God I got that right. Wrote the lyrics to this with Norman and Barrett. Uh, this is just gut wrenching. Uh, Peter, play 204. Just, I mean, so sad yet so gorgeous and such a departure from the songs we've already talked about. I read. Right. Roger had just found out that his wife was cheating on him when he wrote this, and tragically, his unhappiness extended past his lyrics, and the week after this came out, he committed suicide on New Year's Eve, 1967. And the song and album it's named after were big hits, but was that success bittersweet in the light of the tragedy? Yes, it was. You know, uh, sad to say, because Roger Penzabine was a wonderful person. You know, we got along great. You know, and I think he did uh, Please Return Your Love and I Can Never Love Another After Loving You. But sad to say, uh, that's a true story about what happened to him and why it happened to him, you know. And, uh, you know, so uh, when we would sing it live, it always would bring back memories of uh, Roger because he was such a special person. But, you know, when it becomes a matter of the heart, boy, you know, that's a, that's a hell of a tug of a war. A war. Beautiful yeah. song. And I think it also shows that there were many sides to Motown. And in a sense, it's the opposite of My Girl. Yes. Because My Girl is sunshine on a cloudy day. And the opening line of I Wish It Would Rain is sunshine, blue skies, please go away. My girl, my girl has found another and gone away. So to me, they're, they're polar opposites from the same group. They are. Ah, go ahead on there, Harry. So beautiful. All right, moving on to Cloud Nine. This is where you guys start venturing into the psychedelia a little bit. So uh, this funky single is the first with lead vocalist Dennis Edwards, and he was hired after David Ruffin was fired for missing gigs, due in part to his frustration that unlike Diana Ross gaining top billing uh, in the Supremes, Motown wouldn't let him have that with the Temptations. Um and also, I the sound of this, uh, it's I read was inspired by artists like Sly and the Family Stone, and featured uh, guitarist Dennis Coffey, who added the first wah wah guitar effect on a Motown song. Uh, this is also has my favorite part on uh, the entire record. Peter, play two twenty six. Oh my God, I love that bass. I love that D. That is, I love that. <laughs> so much. So, t- so tell me about, tell me about starting to experiment uh, with the uh-huh. other sounds that are going around that time, and and to come up with this. Uh, well, at the time we were coming off a, a fairly big hit, "Please Return Your Love," and um, so we were the Temptations. We were in New York City. And my good friend Kenny Gamble, him and I were uh, talking in my room. Uh, 
at the Warwick Hotel, and I will forget. So we're just talking about record show business and what's happening. And all of a sudden, we heard the dun 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 So it cut into our conversation. I said, Kenny, what the, who in the hell is that? And Kenny said, I don't know. It's interesting. So we stopped talking, and we listened to it. And when it went off, uh, I said, okay, I'm going to catalog that. So anyway, Kenny and I talked, and we parted ways. The Timbs had to fly back to Detroit. And I ran into Norman. I said, hey, Norman, there's a new sound out. And at this time, Dennis Edwards was in the group. So we had had yet to get a hit with Dennis. Uh, I said, man, maybe we should try that because it's something different. Now, for those who do know Norman, Norman was a wonderful guy, but he was cocky as all get out. You know, it wasn't too much you could tell normal without him feeling as though he knew everything. So I said, man, we ought to try it. Ah, man, you ain't heard no clowns. You're a bit pop. I mean, he gave that ruckus. Tim's went out of town, came back in. He had recorded the track to Cloud Nine. So, you know, I had to make fun. Oh, oh, you said what? You wouldn't go? Oh, man, shut up. Come on, let's go in and cut this here. So we went in studio and uh, we recorded Cloud Nine and uh, we put all what it needed, you know, our creation uh, into it. And, um, it was released. Now, mind you, the Temps had become quite spoiled. You know, just about everything that uh, Motown would release on us, it would be going right into the charts, top 10, top five, number one, whatever. So when they released Cloud Nine, I would call them into promotions uh, and whatever. Hey, where we at? Uh, well, Otis, we're getting there, but it's a little slow. Okay, first week. So I called back the second week. So what we're doing? It's picking up a little bit, and it's still a little slow. It's so different, Otis. Okay. I called back the third week, and I got the thing of, man, the record is jumping off. It's picking up here, and they started naming all the different, you know, uh, cities that it was really beginning to take hold. And it did so well, you know, we were the first group for Motown to bring home a Grammy, and that was 1968. 1968, Best Rhythm and Blues Great song, totally deserving. I had mentioned it a moment ago about David Ruffin leaving the group. What was that like, if if you don't mind talking about it? Like, what was that like having to make that decision to to move on from such, you know, an integral part of the group? Well, it was a hurting feeling because we had uh, such a huge hit with David. You know, we had a special kind of bonding. But, you know, I said this here. Be careful what you ask for. We ask for success, but success can really be like a strong aphrodisiac. You never know. You know, you when you start making money hand over fist and all the kind of adulations we were getting and doors opening up to us. And, you know, sometimes uh, it can make you think you more than what you really are. And, uh, and so that was the thing that happened with David. He started thinking more of an individual because David was a solo artist before he came to the Thames. And, uh, it got to the point that, um, you know, we had to let him go. You know, it was just a parting uh, that we didn't want. But David stopped thinking temptations. He started thinking David Ruffin. And uh, so that's what happened. So we had to call Motown and let him know that we had to get somebody else because David started missing shows. And uh, Eddie Kendricks and I, uh, we watched um, Dennis Edwards. And at the time, Dennis was still with the Contours. And we were at the Howard Theater in D.C. And Eddie and myself stood to the side and we said, that's who we should get. He's tall enough. He can sing harmonies and background. And the women will love him. And that's how David got, uh, Dennis got in the group uh, in 1968, 67, 68. So, yeah, but it was bittersweet sorrow of uh, losing uh, David. 
What was what what was Motown's reaction when you had to make that call? Well, they kind of expected it, you know. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, at the time, Don Foster was uh, working up in uh, uh, the management department, and I had to call and I uh, told him, I said, "Hey, man, David didn't make the show, and we can't keep going on like this." Yeah. So uh, they drew up a letter relieving uh, David of his, uh, you know, responsibilities to the group. So Motown kind of had it. Uh, had they understood, it yeah. Was yeah, they understood. Also, you know, this is just hearing you explain it in detail. It's one of my favorite expressions is your ego is not your amigo, you know, and yeah. I'm not just saying like you said success. You start getting you start getting shine and, and it just it. I've seen so many, uh, you know, people that that I respect artists, comics, you know, actors, whatever. They just they just forget that it's you know it's what got them there and they just be, get so focused on being like you said the solo performer um so i can imagine how tough that was but but obviously i mean the right decision uh cloud nine is another shift um because this is a record that was workshopped barry gordy allowed the producers to have a workshop where they could work on things and not have studio time and have tracks assigned to artists where People start getting charged for the time. They started a workshop. So Dennis Coffey had been playing around with his Wawa. Whitfield heard that and put that together. So that's a shift where Motown is starting to expand its creative outlook and allowing producers to do that. The other thing I wanted to mention is, you know, because Whitfield had been inspired by Sly and the Family Stone, even though he says he wasn't. I love the idea that he told Otis to shut up um, and go record. But... uh, a year later, Sly and the Family Stone come out with Hot Fun of the Summertime. And what's the first line of the second verse? I cloud nine when I want to. That's right. Yeah, dude. He was he was just a little dig back. So because yeah. they're, they're oh, doing the boom, beef. They're doing boom 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 boom. You know, they're doing boom 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 boom. Which is where Go. dance the music feeds into cloud nine. Cloud nine feeds into hot fun. Boom, 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 boom. You know, when I want to. Earlier oh, in the song, right, they sing, right. I cloud nine when I want to. Aha. That's right. Oh, I love it. Oh, that, and it, Hold that thought because that's going to lead into uh, the next song's question that I want to ask. So the next song I want to talk about is I'm Going to Make You Love Me. And this is a joint single between Diana Ross and the Supremes and the Temptations. One of the few so without out- Norm Whitfield. It's Frank Wilson. Yeah, so you guys put out several records with them as well as had TV specials together. I just want to hear uh, beautiful Diana's voice. Uh, Peter, play 118. Oh, baby. And I'm going to use every trick in the book. I'll try my best to get you hooked. Hey, baby. Take me, I'm yours. So we, it's so great. This is what I love about doing uh, this podcast is that, like, I had known the Supremes, and then we did uh, the Supremes anthology on the 500. Uh, they were originally uh, the Primettes, the sister act to the pre-Temptation groups, the Primes, while you and Melvin were in the distance. Now, we know how deeply devoted Barry Gordy and Motown were to the Supremes. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? 
That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life. Uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe to Grind podcast. Hello out there! Yes, hello out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimba the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! I wanted to ask you, we kind of touched on it in the last song, what was the relationship between the groups, uh, and was there any rivalry? Oh, yeah, I mean, that's the backbone. That's what made Motown thrive, was the inner rivalry between all the acts there. But, uh, you know, the Supremes uh, were the primates and Paul, Eddie, and Kale, they were the primes. My group was the distance. You know, so we knew each other, but Paul and Eddie and Kale had another kind of a, a friendship with uh, the Supremes, uh, primes at the time, primates. So, yeah, it just so happens to be that we all ended up at Motown. Shows you how fate can uh, uh, take shape because we had no inclination that my group would be in Motown, and I know how we got there because Barry asked me to come. And uh, I brought uh, my group, and then the Supremes had been coming there, like they said, from school. They would come up there to try and uh, be part of Motown, but Barry, they said, would send them home, say, graduate first and come back later. So it was something that, as time and fate would have it, that we all ended up at Motown together. So it was a wonderful transition, but a very interesting uh, transitional period to get to that point where all of us uh, uh, ended up being at Motown. Did you guys like, I mean, I just got to ask, did you guys like do pranks on one another? Did you guys like fuck with each other? Like, like I'm going to, I'm going to put a laxative in Diana Ross's coffee or just something like that. Did you guys do anything fun to like, you know, poke at each other? No, we never did do that. We, we respected them. So uh, no, we, we didn't get that kind of uh, prankish, you know, uh, and then we didn't want uh, the girls to get mad at us. And then, you know, the Supremes were taking off. We didn't want Barry to attempt. Y'all got to leave uh, the girls alone. Now, the one time uh, Barry had to uh, come to the attempts, and we were doing the Ed Sullivan show. So the Supremes were doing our songs, and Temps were doing the Supreme song. But when we would rehearse, oh, we put all the juice into it. David was throwing the microphone up, dropping to his knees. Our choreography was sharp. 
And then I saw what was happening because the, the stagehands and people were just applauding, just applauding. So I saw Barry, uh, Diana walk over and she said something to Barry. Barry came up and said, fellas, lighten up. Lighten up the girls. Yeah, don't, don't, you know, give them a little break. Don't, you know, so the five of us looked at each other and said, yes, sir, Barry, we are lighting up because we, you know, Ed Sullivan, you don't monkey fart around being on Ed Sullivan. You know, you want to go for the gusto. Yeah. You know, so uh, we were trying to make sure that, okay, we here, we're going to let you know why we were able to be on Ed Sullivan. But Mr. Gord asked us to, don't kill them, you know, do what you do, but be gentle. But, you know, big girls, I never will forget that. So five of us said, Yes, sir, Mr. Gordon. We we won't put all our gusto into it. We'll do just enough so the people say, "Yeah, they still attempts." Yeah, I love it, Harry. Do you have anything to add? I mean, I'm going to make you love me. Interestingly enough, you know, Otis is friendly with Kenny Gamble. Kenny Gamble and he discuss dance to the music and the sly thing, and that leads into Cloud Nine. And the next hit is "I'm Going to Make You Love Me," which is co-written by Kenny Gamble. It's one of the first records of the Gamble Huff. You know, experience. I, not to you not to cut you off, but I, what I heard that you know, Dee Dee Warwick had it out first. Dee Dee Warwick and, had it out. Uh, Madeline Bell had it I'm out. Gonna, yeah. So, but Dee Dee Warwick was so mad that I was became number one, and hers, uh, hers, hers didn't. She uh, left the company. But that's what somebody told me. Said, man, when the, she saw that the Tents and the Supremes had a number one record off what she had recorded first, and the company she was. We recording for uh, didn't do it. She left. I said, "Wow, we didn't know that." But that's what somebody told me. Oh, a long time ago now. Yeah, but you guys had the magic, you know. And Frank Wilson got it out of was able to marry the, the voices of Eddie and yeah and Diana, yeah. and then uh, he, you know, uh -huh. it just worked that yeah. way. Oh, it did. It worked out real good. Oh, it's incredible. All right, Runaway Child, Running Wild. So this has all of you trading vocals on this single version that went to number one on the R&B charts. What I found interesting was, so the song tells the harrowing story of a young runaway boy and the scary world he encounters before returning home. And I read that you have heard from lots of fans that were talked out of running away because of this song. When did you first realize the effect your songs had on society? Uh, well, I started realizing that once we got over into the political, you know, uh, side of, you know, Cloud Nine, Runaway Child, Message from a Black Man, uh, that's when people started saying, man, you guys are coming out with some very interesting songs. They weren't just love song, I love you, bushel in the pick, a hug around the neck. We had transcended that on over into talking about what was happening in the world at that time, you know, and Norman Whitfield and Barry Strong were able to capture that in their penmanship and uh, normal with the uh, production in. And, um, you know, uh, it just turned out to be uh, a hit after hit after hit after hit because a lot of those songs that we were singing uh, depicted what we were going through at the time. So we were trying to find some kind of release of tension in the world by putting out songs uh, that was telling the truth, but hopefully you can find some enjoyment uh, with the dance and the, the, the music and what have you. So, yeah, it was very political at that time. Yeah. All right. Well, going with the times, the next one I want to talk about is Psychedelic Shack. Uh, so on this, Norman had you guys go all in with the psychedelic funk sound. Uh, total departure from everything we listened to so far. Peter, play 210. <laughs>
I mean, this is just phenomenal because I just love that the band was starting to push the direction that they were going in. And uh, again, no horns or strings. Yeah. Typical Motown horns and strings, not there. Yeah. I mean, this is t- if this is different than everything we've, we've just discussed so far. Um, I, I, I just have to ask because, like, I know the struggles several of uh, the band had with substances and alcohol. But during this time, did any of you partake in any of the psychedelic experience during those years? Well, I can say for certain I didn't. Yeah, no, I, I'm not trying to sound regadocious. I've always been, you know, you learn a lot in show business and in life. And I saw a lot, still see a lot. But I learned about me. Uh, when I see something, I say, oh, no, I'm not doing that. You know, I stuck to that. You know, and I'm not going to sit here and say I was a saint. You know, I, I, I definitely wasn't that. But I, I have always had a good, strong governor on me, maybe because of the way I was uh, raised and what have you. Because, you know, show business, and when you have had success uh, like we have, or you might want to become very experimental, and which we did, you know, but there's a governor and there's a stoppage for me, whereas... Uh, Far as and the truth be told, I, the cocaine and all that free basin and the uh, angel dust. I no, no, I didn't do any of that because uh, I saw what it did to some uh, uh, friends of mine, and I said, no, I have always got to be in control of Otis Williams. Now, my biggest thing, I, now, I was a chimney because I love weed. I mean, I smoked me some weed, but I don't even yeah. do that anymore, you know. So, uh, uh, but you know, one man's poison can be another man's feast. I rather not feast on some something that's going to bring me down, and I'm thankful to God that I'm still here, uh, able to do what we have to do, and got my own uh, faculties. So it, that's a gray area, you know, because we all handle success differently. You know, where I will, you won't. Where you won't, you uh, I will. So, but no, it's, it, I saw a lot, and it lets me know. No, don't do that, Otis. If you want to be uh, able to keep your faculties, and here I sit today being interviewed because of my two grandmothers instilled in me a whole lot of wonderful things that I care for today. Yeah. Hey, oh, wasn't, wasn't there a real psychedelic shack? Wasn't this based on something? On uh, I don't know, you know, because a lot of times uh, uh, we would go out of town and come back in. Norman would have to track already, you know. Once he got over to that cloud nine side, man, whenever we would come into town, okay, Norman, what you got for us now? Really? Okay, all right, let's go and do it, fellas. You know, uh, I was really impressed when he came up with Ball of Confusion. My God. Yeah, which is the next song I want to talk about. Because this is what I love about this song is this is one of like Motown's like rare protest songs. Yes. I'm. This ref- so we're, it refers to the Vietnam War, to drug abuse, to Nixon's administration. Like, I, I what I want to know, because this is a phenomenal song, like my impression of Barry was that he wanted great pop records and not to disturb the force. So, uh, like, how did you guys feel about tackling these social and political issues? Well, you know, like I said, they were written with great uh, sensibilities of what was happening uh, in the world at the time. And here we are, 2020, and we still having a lot of similarities. Only this time, it's even worse than uh, back during the 60s. But, uh, you know, it was just great to be able to make music that people can really identify with because Ball of Confusion, I think Harry, uh, either Jeff told me, uh, that song is 50 years old. And I it said, is. you yeah, it is. See, I said, I never would imagine that the temptation, me in particular, because I'm still here singing songs that is 50 years old. Uh, I've since learned that my girl has since became a standard, 
I said, you kidding me? He said, no, my girl is a stand And one day I heard uh, Paul, uh, um, Tony Bennett. So I'm sitting there, I'm saying, is that my girl? That sound like Tony Tony Bennett singing My Girl, and the way he did it was typically uh, Tony Bennett. But uh, yeah, so My Girl and Ball of Confusion, songs that's over 50 years old. And the song, the the, uh, the lyrics resonate just like uh, back then. They resonate today, what's happening in the world. So I listened to uh, Ball of Confusion. I said, wow, I never would imagine. Here it is 50 years later, and we're still going through this here poo-poo caca. You know, I, I remember as a kid, buying that 45. Motown rarely had picture sleeves. And I remember Ball of Confusion had a picture sleeve without right. the group's picture on it. It was a, a globe, you know, illustration of the world and the title. On the back were the lyrics. I'd never been able to yeah. read the lyrics for a Motown song before. Right. That I remember being significant. Even my young brain was like, oh, this is important. More than the yeah. beat, more than the wild guitars. This is important. Yeah. Uh, great song. And then you guys kind of go back to like a throwback to some of your earlier like romantic 60 years subject matter with just my imagination running away with me. Uh, <laughs> Peter, play 229. Every night on my knees I pray Dear Lord, hear my I read this was intentional to appease your longtime fans after a good amount of psychedelic songs. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. We were in the studio uh, with Norman, and you know, all before then, we had been doing you know the the psychedelic soul stuff, you know. But being out on the road, our fans said, "Well, we like the psychedelic." Uh, stuff, but when are you guys going to come back and start doing those lush ballads that you're known for? So we told Norman, hey, Norman, we're out there and our fans wanted to hear, uh, you know, some of those ballads. Because let me tell you what happened for Papa Was a Rolling Stone uh, to come about. See, Papa Was a Rolling Stone almost didn't get recorded because we were tired of that uh, psychedelic soul. And uh, uh, so eventually we were able to, but I, I'm trying to twist it around because when we did Papa Was a Rolling Stone, uh, Damon Harris was in the, uh, in the group. But when we did Just My Imagination, uh, Eddie Kendricks, Paul, Dennis, Melvin, and myself. But yeah, it, it was a very uh, interesting time of switching from the uh, Cloud Nine and the Psychedelic Soul to get to uh, Just My Imagination, which unfortunately was Eddie Kendricks last recording uh, for us, you know, and uh, Norman went on and recorded. And there again, I must say, when we went in the studio to do uh, Just My Imagination, we would always go in the studio about 7, 8 o'clock in the evening. We knocked the background out by like 11, 12 o'clock. And uh, so Dennis, Melvin, Paul, and myself, we left. Eddie stayed behind. I said, all right, bro, I'll see you. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow. When I called Eddie Kendricks the next morning, I, I said, so how'd it go? He said, man, I'm just not getting into the house. It was 7 o'clock the next morning. Norman Whitfield kept him there all night long to make sure he got uh, he captured the right tenderness and the melodic flow 
of just my imagination, and it sold over two million copies. So it was a, an interesting period of time of you know experimenting and going back and forth to try and get certain songs. Because like I told Norma, Norma, we out there. We hear what our fans are asking. We love the secondary stuff, but when are you guys going to come back to the ballots? And we did, and that's what happened. So besides the Funk Brothers, this also has the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. And like you mentioned, yes. this is the last song to feature Eddie, who left for a solo career, and then Paul, who left for health reasons. So I wanted to ask you, with so many personnel changes behind you and even more ahead of you, did you ever imagine running away from the group? You know what? I get asked that quite often, and no, I haven't. Uh, I just, for whatever reason, I just always felt as though we would overcome. I was naturally tired of the, you know, the turnaround and the break this person in and hoping our fans would understand and uh, and uh, love us for who we brought in, and, you know, but, uh, but I never had the thing of uh, wanting to throw in the towel or give up and say the hell with it, you know, and I must say, Mr. Gordon, I uh, have always been there for Melvin and myself. He said, I'm the oldest, Melvin, for whatever you have to do, Motown, we got you. And Barry, he really hung in there with us. And like I said, you know, most recording companies, if you lose one, they become the hell with him. I ain't got nothing oh, yeah. to do with that. Next. But Mr. <laughs> Gordon never did do that. He would always, uh, uh, he was very supportive of us. And uh, that's why, you know, we continued on because we had his blessing. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned it on the last song. You brought up Papa was a Rolling Stone. Um Man, I love this song so much. This was the last big hit recorded at Studio A in Motown's Hitsville, USA headquarters, and it's just pure fire, man. What I love about this song, which you obviously know, it's it starts with a minute and 55 intro, and then you just drop it in. Uh, but this chorus is is just so phenomenal. Uh, Peter, play the chorus. Papa was This ha- I think this might be my favorite song by The Temptations. And it's your last number one on the pop chart. And the album version being almost 12 minutes long and the single almost seven minutes long, it was one of the longest number ones ever. Yeah. Was that, yeah. A- I mean, like, so why, why so long? Like, why? I mean, the, the groove is insane. Well, see, at that time, you know, uh, you could go long, you know, because you got a lot of FM uh, stations that would play elongated songs. You know, we couldn't quite do it during the uh, AM time because commercials and what have you. So uh, Quiet Storm at that time started really becoming a noted uh, format for getting records uh, of any length played. But in actuality, we did the vocals over at Studio B over on, on Davidson. I know I might have recorded the track over at Studio A, but we did the vocals over at uh, Studio B over on uh, Davidson. And Norman, one day after we finished, he said, uh, he was telling me how that uh, that horn part came along. And Maurice, the trumpet player, I can't think of his last name, great uh, musician, he's since passed. And he said Maurice was leaving out of the studio and Norman had just received this here uh, Echo Plex or whatever. He said, hey, man, I, I want to try this here thing. I'll come on back and play something down for me right quick. So uh, Maurice turned around, went on in the studio, and what you hear uh that trumpet part on it one take one take no one said 
that's great. So uh, Maurice was ready to do something. He said, no, no, that's it. I got what I want. And Maurice left. And Norman worked it up that it is one of the feature parts of uh, Papa Was a Rolling Stone. Yeah, that trumpet player was Maurice Davis from Detroit. Yes, sir. You're right. God bless Maurice Davis. All right, the other person I want to talk to you because you have another person dropping in on the next song, Shake Ground. This is your last number one on the soul chart. Written by Funkadelic guitarist Eddie Hazel, uh, which we did Maggot Brain early on in this journey through the list, and it's still one of my favorite records that I had never heard and now I'm just in love with. And both he and Funkadelic bassist Billy Bass Nelson play on it. And you can tell it's going to be funky right from the jump. Peter, play the intro. I mean, that is just so funky, man. You can't not move your head to this. Also, speaking of shaky ground, it also features Los Angeles session players uh, rather than the Funk Brothers. Right. Was that on purpose or like? Uh, yeah, that was on purpose. That was by uh, uh, Jeffrey Bourne. He was the producer. So I guess he wanted to establish his own uh, uh, input and identity. So uh, Jeffrey Bourne brought those guys uh, into the studio. And like I said, they were funkier than an unwashed armpit, you know. So it was really uh, great to him uh, get that kind of funky, you know, because when I first heard the track, I said, wow, that's that's some shown up funk there. So, uh, uh, and then we did it in person and uh, the, the audience would go crazy, you know, over the choreography that the late, great Lon Fontaine uh, taught us. So, uh, yeah, we just had a wonderful uh, time with all those songs, but uh, shaky ground, yep, funky. Little Motown inside baseball. So Eddie Hazel's band was signed to Motown, snatched from P-Funk to become their own group, but they didn't release any, anything. So, you know, this was taken from Eddie, one of Eddie, Eddie Hazel's sessions. Really? And given to them. And Jeffrey got it for the temps. Oh, great to know. Okay. That was great. Like the Commodores did, I Feel Sanctified. That's an Eddie Hazel P-Funk oh. record taken from Eddie oh, Hazel's okay. sessions and given to the Commodores. Shake your ground, Bowen grabbed for y'all. I'm still laughing at, at Otis saying, funkier than an unwashed armpit. <laughs> that is incredible. I'm stealing so much shit from you, man. All these little, like, catchphrases, Otis. I'm like, oh, I got that from, I got the Otis of the Temptations. That's incredible. I have a book that's getting ready to uh, worked on because I've had a lot of people say, Otis, you need to do a book, but you and your funny ass saying. So it's a book that's in process. It'll be out uh, not too long from now. Oh, my God. We will promote the hell out of that book. All right. Standing on top, Melvin Franklin's nephew wrote and produced your 1982 comeback single and reunion with Eddie, David, and Dennis. Uh, I love this. Of course, his nephew is Rick James. And uh, we just got to play a little taste of this. Peter, play 136. This is so Rick James, it's not even funny. 
That's right. This is just, it, it just feels like, what's that like working with Rick? Oh, it was wonderful. You know, uh, Rick was one of those one-of-a-kind characters. Very talented. Very talented because at the time when Standing on the Top came about, uh, Mr. Gordon had uh, taken the helm of trying to get us back out there because we had left Norman Whitfield. And so uh, uh, Mr. Gordon said, okay, I'll, I'll spearhead the project. And uh, um, Rick James said, I got a song for the Temps. And he played the track. I said, man, that is really nice. So we went in there and uh, we, uh, at the time it was the reunion. David Ruffin, Eddie Kendricks, Melvin Franklin, Dennis Edwards, Richard Street, Glenn Leonard, and myself. And at that time, we were trying to get the uh, the reunion tour uh, started. And that was the song that, you know, uh, got us out, out on the road uh, with that kind of freshness. But uh, it was it was great. But Rick, I must say this, Rick and Mel, uh, they, they wasn't related. I don't know how that came about, but. You know, Melvin and myself had been friends from he was 16 and I was 17. And so uh, that whoever brought that out, that, that's not true. They wasn't related at all. Oh, well, I'll blame Morty for that. My uh, it was, no, it was good PR. My, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, no, that fact got floated. In fact, when I first met Melvin, he t- we, we talked about Rick. He says, oh, that's my cousin, you know. Uh-huh. Um, so that wink. Uh-huh. No wink. You mentioned the reunion, Otis. Like, how did you feel about that? You know, getting everybody together again. Uh, you know, and I'm going to be very honest and truthful about what I'm about to say, the reunion. I didn't want it. Hmm. You, know, you know, I didn't want it because let me say this, reason I, and I'm not trying to sound sanctimonious or more than I am. I knew the other guys were over on the other side of midnight. And I would tell them, I said, Melvin, they're still doing that stuff. I ain't got time for that now. And so he kept saying, come on, man, we're going to get Bob Bam. Kenny Gamble talked to him. Jimmy Bishop, I noticed, noted this jockey. He was saying, yeah, you know, let's do it, let's do it. So I said to myself, Otis, let's make this here happen. Because what I didn't want to happen was, man, we could have made a whole lot of money, but Otis Williams didn't want to bring it back together. So I said, okay, we're going to try it. David flew out from Detroit, and he sat down. He said, Otis, man, I'm sorry. I won't be like I was before. I'm straight. We're going to ride this here thing. So I said, okay, we're going to give it a shot. So we rehearsed like mad crazy. We rehearsed, we rehearsed, because there were seven of us. So we had to do a whole other staging, a whole lot of more, a lot more uniforms and all that. Uh, we got out on the road, and first thing started happening was the old scene that we lived uh, through years ago. Guys started missing the show, and the promoters would have all of our names, the return of the seven. And those that didn't make the show, the promoters would take their name off the billboard. And I looked at Melvin. I said, see, what I tell you? Melvin just stood there and looked. And the last night down in Fort Lauderdale, Indiana, I mean, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, I told Eddie, I said, Eddie, you go and do your thing. When this is over, the now temps, uh, we'll go and do ours. Eddie really wanted to come back with us and be in Motown, but for whatever reason, it didn't happen. But it just alluded to the thing of, I had a feeling that it was going to go back to those crazy days of drugs, drugs. I'm just going to leave it right out there and just say it the way it was. And that is why 
I didn't want to do it, but I did it because I didn't want nobody to say, well, man, Otis, you, could, you know, y'all could have made a lot of money. Yeah, we could have made a lot more money if we all had been thinking in the same way, but we did not. And that's why I didn't extend no longer than about a year or a little better than a year because the craziness was still there. Yeah. You, hey, you tried. And that's yeah. and that's all you could say. You tried, yeah. you know, and and I probably made the people that did get to see it extremely happy. But you know, l- luckily it only took a year, and it wasn't like you know even longer, and you would have been miserable. So true. So yeah, you know. that's true, dude. Don't you have it? Give, give me a night. This would be a perfect moment for you to have like an expression. Yeah, man, I'm cool as a as a turtle on a Thursday. I'm cool as the other side of the pillow. There you go, man. Didn't you say that? Uh, David Ruffin's eyes were like two cherries in a glass of milk. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's one of my sayings. Red is two cherries in a glass of milk. You know, you put bloodshot your- eyes. Ah, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. bloodshot. Yeah. What's up, everyone? This is Jay Reason. I want to let you all know that Diablo Zen Podcast is now part of the Sound Talent Media family. Listen in as me and the one and only Danny Diablo, a.k.a. Lord Ezak, interview artists from the hardcore punk, metal, hip-hop scenes, and beyond. We have conversations with guests like actor Peter Green, DJ Muggs from Cypress Hill, L.A. street photographer Estevan Oriol, Jimmy G from New York City's legendary Murphy's Law, and pro wrestler Vampiro, to name a few. If you're a fan of good discussions and lots of laughs, tune in and join the fun. All right. Last song I want to talk about, Treat Her Like a Lady. So this was co-written by you and vocalist Ali Ali Woodson for his first lead with the group. Produced by Al McKay of Earth, Wind & Fire. Right. Now you had co-written the first few songs you did uh, in 1961, but then none until this one in 1984. And uh, after listening to it, I got to say, this sounds so 1984. Uh, Peter, play 15 seconds into it, brother. It's just like, I just, it's just, it just, I just, I can feel Ronald Reagan and the trickle down effect and Reaganomics. It's just, it's so 80s. I love it. Uh, tell me about it, buddy. Well, you know how Treat Her Like a Lady came about. It, uh, Ali and I, we were uh, sitting in uh, my uh, house and we were just talking. You know, when you hear a lady say, where are the men today? Where are the gentlemen? You know, uh, my God, is that a loss art? Because I was teaching my uh, 12 year old uh, granddaughter, I said, Look, um, let me let grandpa tell you something. Her name is London. I said, London, I'm gonna give you something to mark if you got a gentleman on your hand. The man is supposed to open the door, take you by the hand, ease you in the car, go around to the other side and get in. And then once you get to where you're going, you're supposed to get out of the car, come around, open the door, take you by the hand, and help you out of the car. I said, You use that as a judge of what kind of uh, guy. Uh, this guy's going to be. So as Ali and myself were talking about it, Ali was a good pianist, so he just started uh, playing a groove. And I came up, I'm the kind of guy who don't believe. Come on, man, keep on. That's it. We got some motives. We got some. Keep going. And that's how uh, Treat Her Like a Lady came about was through the uh, thinking of uh, listening at women complain about not being treated like a lady. So that was the birth of Treat Her Like a Lady. I love it. I love it. All right. You want to do uh, some facts and get out of here? Yes. Perfect. All right. Here we go. All right. So you were fortunate uh, to work with two 
main incredible producer, songwriters in Smokey Robinson and Norman Whitfield and his lyricist Barrett Strong, who also sang the first single for Barry Gordy with Money, That's What I Want. What were the differences between working with Smokey and then Norman and Barrett? Oh, well, it was like night and day. See, Smokey is so organized. When you go in the studio uh, to record for Smokey, he's got his lyrics. Everything is in order. Uh, like when we did My Girl, he sat down, Ronnie White was there, he sat down at the piano, and he should have sung the melody. And uh, he left the background up to us. You know, he showed us the hook. So it was always uh, organized for smoking. Norman, Norman was a track master. He would lay out the idea, but we would develop all the other little accoutrements, you know, uh, whatever little tidbits and harmonies and answers and what have you. He would leave that basically up to us. He would show us uh, tell us how, you know, he heard the song. But uh, Ball of Confusion and Can't Get Next to You, all those, uh, pretty much we did that. Norman was, uh, he would lay the track, but he said, Temps, here's the idea of the song, and we listened at it, and then one by one, uh, two of us started harming something, and he said, okay, let's do it. And next thing you know, that was the development of uh, uh, the songs that we did with Norman. But Smokey, he was a breeze to work with. Norman? Uh, all right, but at times it was a little chaotic with Norman. Sure. All right. Uh, so we I mentioned it earlier, but uh, many of us saw the 1998 four-hour miniseries based on your autobiography. Were there any liberties that they took with your true story that you had issue with? Uh, no. I, I laughed the other day. Somebody sent me something asking Leon uh, how he got to be, uh, how he played David Ruffin. See, Leon and I, we used to kind of hang together when he was out here, and we were at a party uh, up in Hollywood, and when I, Shelly Collins said that they were going to do the Temp's Life Story, I said, oh, great. So I said, Leon, look like they're going to do, do the Temp's Life Story. I would love for you to play me. All right, well, it's fine. I would love to do that. We went to Paris, came back from Paris, and Leon told me he was, uh, was going to do David Ruffin. So I said, how did he get to be David Ruffin? Uh, and I was told that he went and got the condom pants that we used to wear at the time and got some kind of process like David uh, wore in the glasses. And when he walked in, I think Shelly said, everybody said, oh, my God, that you the one, you the one. You know, so that's how uh, he uh, came to be David Ruffin. But when I saw the play, I mean, the, the miniseries and the line that he used, Leon just, uh, that was an improv line. He said, uh, ain't nobody come to see you, Otis. I said, oh, and the guy that was asking that, he said, yeah, that was my favorite line out, out of it. So Leon came to see the show in New York City, and it was packed. I uh, mean, and Leon was just a few feet from me. I said, hey, Leon, they came to see me now. Look at all this. He said, yeah, 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 you got me, you got me. So I had great pleasure of uh, telling him, uh, uh-huh, you said that in the thing, in the miniseries, but look at this place now. And the whole theater was singing happy birthday to me because it was uh, near my birthday, but it was packed to the walls. Yeah, man. All right. So Charlie Atkins, Motown's choreographer, worked with Temptation, Paul Williams on your dance move, uh, many of which were showcased in the 2018 hit Broadway jukebox musical, also based on your autobiography, Ain't Too Proud to Beg, The Life and Times of the Temptations, which won the Tony Award for Best Choreography. So I wanted to ask you, how long did you spend on each song before you were ready to perform? Well, with Charlie, very, Charlie was uh, meticulous, you know, doing his stuff. You, you had to really have your brain cells really wide open because 
he would do little hitch kicks and he would tell us, boy, you can't go to Cleveland if you ain't Cleveland, move your ass. You know, he would cuss at us and all that, and uh, but it was well worth it. I had heard and, and I saw Charlie's uh, choreography when I was about 14 or 15 years old at the Fox Theater. What he did with ca- the Cadillacs, and the Cadillacs brought down the theater, and uh, Franklin Lyman and the Teenagers was on, Jimmy Johnson, uh, a big cast. But when the Cadillacs came out there and started doing all that stuff uh, that uh, Charlie had showed them, I saw one of the Cadillacs on the side of uh, backstage, and I said, man, who taught you guys all those steps? So he was signing an autograph. He said, young brother, if you should ever become what we are, don't forget to look up Charlie Atkins. Now, I was 14 years old. And when Charlie, I saw Charlie when uh, we were in D.C., and he was a Gladys Knight in the Pips. And I said, so, Mr. Atkins, I'm so honored to meet you. I love your work and what have you. And I said, we have the way. He said, oh, I know what you have. He called Mose, Mose. I know what you got out. He said, now, if I'd staged that, and he, he did a little move that I still remember, over 50 years uh, later, I said, wow, just that little move. But he stepped and he opened it up like, surprise. And I said, Charlie Atkins. That was 1964. 1965, 66, he came to Motown. And we had the, the wonderful times of working with the late, great Charlie. And he was a taskmaster. But once Charlie, asked Gladys Knight and the Pips. Ask the OJs. You know, in fact, we told OJs who would go see in Cleveland, Ohio, they said, man, who do, who taught you all those steps? I said, well, Paul in the, in the attempts, and then Charlie Atkins. And little by little, they found Charlie Atkins. So when you see the uh, OJs, uh, Charlie Atkins did them. So he, he was a bad man. I love him and miss him. Uh, right on. All right, last last fact. Uh, label mate Rick James helped the band have a big comeback after you appeared on his 1981 hit Super Freak, which I had no idea that the Temptations sang the O O O O part. Um, yeah. What was the freakiest thing you ever saw on the road? <laughs> uh, now, you know you don't want me to go there because I've yeah, seen dude, a... yeah, dude. Oh man. Um, Whatever you could get away with, just give me a give me a. Uh, well, one of the things that I uh, it, it wasn't so freaky, but everybody that saw it busted out laughing their asses off. Uh, we were at um, I think it was either here in L.A. or uh, San Diego. Uh, no, it was here in L.A. We packed the farm. Like you know, the farm holds over twenty plus thousand people. It depends on how they have it configured. So as we were getting, we were doing the show, and the ladies were just ooing and wah, bit bop, bam. So I guess they knew when we got down to losing you, uh-oh, Tim's getting ready to come off. So we were doing the choreography to losing you, and the ladies started coming from the stands down the aisle, converging onto the stage where we were. So we said, man, we better break rank because we ain't going to get out of here alive the way they're coming. So the five of us, we broke rank and – Three went one way. Eddie Kendricks and myself went uh, the same way. So being young, it was a tall fence. So I ran, boop, boop, bam. I jumped over and I'm on the other side. Come on, Ed, come on, Ed. So Eddie ran and jumped. And as Eddie was halfway across the fence, some young ladies grabbed him by the seat of his, his pants, the belt part. And as Eddie was coming over, they pulled back. And Eddie came into the dressing room damn near uh, showing all his asked me no questions. So we died laughing. So that that's one of the highlights that I always think about. Uh, Eddie came in holding up his drawers because they took his uh, he took his pants. 
Uh, I can imagine what you couldn't get away with telling me right now. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ah, <laughs> put it in the book. You got it. Uh, guys, I can't thank you enough uh, for taking the time out to speak with me today uh, about the record, about your life and your, your journey with The Temptations. Um, before we go, is there anything you guys want to promote or you just want to say in closing? Well, what I'd like to promote is that uh, we're getting ready to do our, uh, like I said earlier, 60th anniversary a CD and uh, and I like to tell my fans because I've been asked, uh, "Oh, this now it's no, it's not going to be any cover." I said, "No, it's going to be all fresh, never heard before song." So uh, they were always relieved to hear that because for the last few years we've been doing cover job, but this will be a, a fresh, brand new approach with uh, Eddie. I mean, with uh, Ron Tyson, Terry Weeks. Those two have been with me for quite some time. Willie uh, Green. And uh, Mario Carpino, he's the newest member. So uh, that will be coming out next year for our 60th anniversary. That's so incredible. 60 years, man. Yeah, man. 60 years. Yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine all the, the, the great sayings you've had in those 60 years. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. And the book, whenever that comes out. Oh, I, I'm going to call and let them know uh, the, how's the book coming to people. Because Eddie Holland, Brian Holland, we were in uh, Detroit, and I said, man, you, Lamont, and your brother have got to be one of the baddest uh, songwriters, producers uh, in the business. So Brian being modest, uh, he said, no, man, no, no, no. I said, man, bullshit on the reindeer's back. That was some cold piece of work. Brian liked to fell over there. He said, man, where do you get these sayings from? I said, I got a book coming out, and it's got a lot of my sayings in there. So, but he died laughing when I said, you bad as a bull, uh, bullshit on the reindeer's back. So, yeah, I, that's just my ear has been like that since I was 14 years old. Uh, Harry, do you have anything you want to promote or, or, or mention before we go? <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to the 60th. There's so much to talk about and unwind. And Otis and I recorded um, a couple things where we investigate the stems for some of their hits. So that'll be coming next year. And uh, we hope that Ain't Too Proud, the musical, will be not only back on Broadway, when Broadway's back, but also the national tour has yeah. been, uh, yeah. they were they were ready to go before all this happened. Yeah, I and remember seeing the signs It's just an extraordinary pantages. group of talented people in that show. And, uh, you know, to hear the songs done uh, by the next generation is a great experience. Yeah. I, I'll tell you this. Uh, when I saw it, first time I saw it in New York, and they were just... Uh, beginning to uh, rehearse it. Uh, they just showed me the first half. And when I got up, the whole cast gathered around me. And I said, you guys and girls, I'm sitting there crying. And one guy said, Mr. Williams, if you're crying already, that means it's a hit. And then another guy said, well, you know, men cry too. I said, yeah. I said, but I, I had not expected to be moved to tears. So when I see it, even if I were to see it today, it will still move me to tears to see what I have been through and still be able to uh, enjoy what's happening. So it, it's touching. It's not only entertaining, it will touch your heartstrings. Well, you've touched so many people's heartstrings, and I, I can't thank you enough uh, for everything that you've done uh, musically and then sitting down with me today and just talking to me about your, your career, man. So thank you guys for the bottom of my heart. My pleasure.
What did I tell you? What did I tell you? The one and only Otis Williams of The Temptations. Guys, for all things Temptations, go to their website, temptationsofficial.com. Don't forget, The Temptations are getting ready for their 60th anniversary celebration with a brand new album and a tour that will happen next year. So go to their website to make sure that you follow it. And also, huge thanks to my new friend, Harry Weinger. Such an honor and a pleasure to talk to both of you gentlemen. Now, we just listened to The Temptations from, well, it says 1995, but it's really late 60s, 70s. This week, our music director, Little Maddie Pinfield, is giving us Vintage Trouble. And you are listening to their latest single, Not Alright By Me, We Can't Wait. Vintage Trouble is a four-piece rhythm and blues rock band that formed in Hollywood. Known for their incredible live shows, they have been a staple of the L.A. music scene for the last decade. Inspired by a cross-section of Motown and British Invasion, lead singer Ty Taylor has done many soulful collaborations, including one with Daryl Hall from Hall & Oates on his Live from Daryl Hall's House TV show. You can find all the links on our website, 500podcast.com. And if you're in a band and you are directly influenced by one of these albums or artists and you want your music featured on the 500, send your song to 500podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you put the album and artist that influenced you in the subject line. Next week, it's Tom Waits week, round two, as we go deep into his 1985 album, Rain Dogs. So y'all got some homework to do. Listen to the album... Stay fleecy, Dougal. Hold a hand, hold a shoulder. Don't you know you gotta whistle in the wind and open up your eyes and feel again. Hold on to one another, feel again. A brother face down to the ground, screaming mercy, mercy, please. A man in midnight blue. Upon his neck with heaven need And choked out is alive where there is no hope left to breathe And that's not alright Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? 
In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Next Chapter Podcasts.